Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Quizlet, the weekly show where we chat with upcoming Quizatron guests. I'm Rebecca Watson, your intrepid host. My usual co-host, Keith L. Jensen, can't be here today, unfortunately. He's busy randomly wandering the streets looking for Nazis to punch. Uh, but I'm very excited for this interview because today I'm talking with an old friend and top quality nerd who you will definitely know if you have been to any nerd events in or around San Francisco in the past few years. You might also know him from Tested.com's This Is Only a Test or from the Bay Area Science Festival, which he directs, or from his podcast, Inquiring Minds. It's Kishore Hari. Hey, Kishore. How's it going? I like being called friend. I don't know about the old part. I mean, it's, oh. it's totally accurate. I just don't yeah. like being called it. That's My funny. elderly friend. I'm sorry. <laughs> Is that better? I'm like getting close to just being called geriatric at this point. So yeah, I might as well just embrace it. I mean, I feel like the past two years have aged us all in dog years, basically. So we're all about 20 years older than we were last year. I'm also developing all of those habits that my dad had that drove me nuts as a kid. <laughs> like uh, what? Oh, uh, there's one that is so embarrassing, but I just started doing it and I can't explain why. So my dad used to, whenever he sat down on our couch in our living room, would take off his socks, which is fine. This is all fine so far, but then he would shove them underneath the couch and which makes <laughs> like absolutely no sense. Right. And yeah. so. The other day, I'm like, I'm watching Netflix at home and I do that move. And my wife is like, no, what was that? That is there's no part of that. That's OK. Even if you were alone, what are you doing? Yeah. Why? That's such a straight. And that's not a traditional like old person habit. That's just a weird thing your dad did that now you're doing. Yes. So I but I associate it with getting older because it makes no logical sense whatsoever. And that's my definition of getting older. Yeah. Doing things that make no sense. I always suspected that as I got older, eventually I would start um, blowing my nose in a really loud manner. Because, <laughs> you know, I have always when I blow my nose, it is a quiet affair. Some would say a silent affair. But when my parents blow their nose, particularly my dad, it is like this loud honking sound. And I always thought growing up, like, that's just, that's getting older. When, you, when you're old, you make a honking sound when you blow your nose. But sure. it hasn't happened to me yet. I mean, it, you just age into it. It's, it's genetics. Yeah. Also, s- sneezing. Um, when you sneeze, you don't just sneeze. You preface it with a, ah, <laughs> Like, I feel like that's a part of getting older, too. There's this old SNL uh, commercial with Will Ferrell and uh, Kristen Wiig where she's talking about some cold medicine and he's sitting there. And when he sneezes, it's the loudest fucking thing you've ever heard. <laughs> just like, ah! and, it, and my wife says, that's how I sneeze. I'm just like instantaneously loud out of nowhere. The cat goes running you know, across the house. Anytime I sneeze, I'm sure I'm accosting people on the street. (laughs) Uh, They're going to trace like 2018 flu that devastates millions back to one of my loud sneezes. (laughs) And that's, that's completely unintentional though. Like I feel like the old person "Eh," that you throw in beforehand, I feel like that's intentional. I think it's, it's something they choose to do. 
Well, welcome to this week's episode of Old News Daily. <laughs> I'm your old news host. All right, Kishore, let's get into it. Uh, you make a living similar to me in that you seem like you do approximately 8,000 different things. But- I like doing 8,000 different things. It makes me feel like I'm accomplishing nothing at any of them. <laughs> right. It's that whole master of none situation. Uh, I, I agree. I, I like it too. And I... I feel like if I have just one big job, it's just too overwhelming and it gets boring. I, for me, it's a little bit of uh, just having uh, some variety uh, because, yeah. uh, because there is boredom that sets in with any, you know, any one particular avenue, even if it's the most fulfilling job in the world. I feel like there's always some minutia that's boring about it. And this is a way to just, uh, you know, uh, explore that's the yeah. nice way of putting it it's probably a, a way for me to keep busy so i don't actually have to feel any of my feelings so i'm always <laughs> just in a constant state of being busy that's why i drink alcohol interesting yeah, yeah that's why i got started drinking alcohol <laughs> same same reason. right i hate these feelings if only i could do something about that but wait you can yeah there's lots of other things. I haven't really progressed to the real hardcore ways of not feeling feelings. But oh, good. <laughs> I'm going to stick and stay with where I'm at. Uh, but I, I, part of it is also, uh, you know, I I run a lot of events and I uh, I really you know, try to cause trouble uh, in the science world is how I like to <laughs> phrase it. Um, part of it is like there's a, a bit of me that's just like, ah, I want to try something new. I want to experiment. I want to do weird things. And the only way I can really do that, there's no one job that's like, go out and do whatever the hell you want and, and tell us what happened. Yeah. Uh, so I have to kind of have like 8 million things going. Yeah, I think, I mean, that makes total sense to me. Let's. I, I think we're the two people in the world that that makes sense to. <laughs> well, actually, that was going to be another one of my questions for you is like, do you think, I have trouble when people ask me, you know, how do I do what you do? And I'm like, you don't, don't do it. It's a terrible <laughs> idea. But do you, do you think that there's, is your career path a viable option for other uh, people who are interested in science? So weirdly, I mean, just to give people a little background. So I was a scientist for a long time and I actually you know, sold a company that I started uh, uh, that was a science business. And I was, you know, relatively young and I had this weird inflection point of what, you, what the hell do I want to do with my life? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I, I got enamored with this idea of, of starting a science cafe, which is this, you know, real basic idea of a scientist instead of giving a talk at a, you know, at a university auditorium, doing it in a cafe or a bar. Yeah. Um, and I, I got, really into the idea of that mixing these social experiences with with science ones uh both because i think scientists learn a lot from being uh, from getting out of their comfort zone and that the audiences that show up and engage get something different out of it too and that evolved over time and uh i really deeply care about creating those types of experiences but in the past uh i don't know 10 12 years since i first started doing this like what actually gets me excited? What sort of is the edge of what that looks like has shifted greatly to the point where, you know, like last year I was doing a science wrestling event and I was like the hype man for it. And I was like, things have changed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But um, part of that is that I, I see, you know, there's this big bell curve out there of the kinds of stuff that exists, especially for live science events. 
And uh, if somebody isn't at one of the edges at the bell curve uh, trying to push the boundaries, the middle is just going to stay in the same place. And uh, and for all the ills that are going on in the world that, you know, track back to science, uh, that's not OK by me. So this is my really, really, really small part of doing something about it. And in politics, it's known as pushing the Overton window. You're- I, I don't use that term because that's like Fox News term. No. <laughs> Has Fox News co-opted Overton window? Yes, they use the term Overton window all the time. And I feel bad for Rick Overton, wherever he is. Yeah. I've, I, I mean, I only ever heard it in progressive circles, you know, because I'm part of that section of politics where it's like we need to be more radical towards the left to, you know, make Democrats actually look more like liberals in other countries. I'm just I didn't I, I actually use the term Overton window. Here. And so <laughs> I actually was at a science conference where I used that term to describe this strategy around yeah. uh, around engagement. And people are like, what does that mean? And I was like, I think I'm on Daily Coast too much. Yeah. <laughs> the, so the wrestling event, was that with Hood Slam? That was with Hood Slam. Like the idea behind that was um, a few groups had had uh, come up with the idea of having like science battles that were supposed to be like rap battles, and they always turned out like a. Um, I'm going to be generous and say a little lame, but the truth is is just awful, cringy and, as fuck. That's what and, it sounds like. And so uh, a, a friend of mine was like, "Hey, have you ever been to Hood Slam?" And I was like, "No, but I'm going to say yes to whatever that is." I didn't know right. what it was, and so I went to one. And it's this, you know, slightly underground wrestling event. And it's yeah. uh, pretty wild. You've been to it, too. Um, yeah. I go every month now. After the first one I went to, I said, "This, these are my people. I did not realize that my people were wrestlers, but... The yeah. wrestling subculture like tracks back to when I when I was younger. I used to watch uh, WWF like every Ditto. weekend on Ditto. Saturday morning. So, like, it was, it was a little bit of, like, reconnecting to my youth. I went to see the first show I went to see wasn't in Oakland. It was like way out there in a town like called Kingston. And they're like, oh, it's, like it's in the Bay Area. And I was like, I've never heard of that town. And I love like, how the Bay Area can refer to anything up to 400 miles from San Francisco. Exactly. So it was like an hour and a half, two hour drive from San Francisco. Oh, my and God. You're in, um, you know, there's this one stop sign town and there's one bar and they set up a ring in like the backyard of this bar. And it like it, but it was magical. Like it was just ridiculous and over the top and there are all these characters and like, we're just drinking at the bar afterwards with my friends and it kind of just clicked in. I'm like, you know, what if we, those wrestlers, they're actors. Like people don't call them that, but they're actually professional actors and what if we got them to, you know, act out some science stuff? And yeah. we settled on this idea of like scientists are people too. They fucking hate each other at points. <laughs> like there's a lot of scientists that have all these beefs with each other. Like what if we get them to act that out? Um, and so we took some of the biggest like historical scientific battles and had the wrestlers do it. And the constraint we put on the system, it was like no scientists coming in there and giving like a talk. And like yeah. framing anything, it was like the wrestlers have to do everything. Yeah, uh, and like our job was just to get the wrestlers up to speed, right? And so we did some really ridiculous things. Like we had a Tesla Edison match. That, that was, was going to be my first question. Like, yeah, it that's was a cage match. We actually built a cage for it. <laughs> uh, 
A Faraday cage? Yeah, so that was the joke, is that it was a Faraday cage. Yeah. But, but to win, you had to like lock the person in this cage. And so they, it was like, you know, like that's a wrestling trope, right? So yeah. It totally worked. Uh, and then the uh, and then my favorite match though the one that the crowd really got behind is we did a Rosalind Franklin versus Watson and Crick. Yes. You know if you don't know the story, basically Rosalind Franklin was an X-ray technician, and a lot of her work uh, on uh, sussing out the the structure of DNA, the shape of DNA, was stolen by Watson and Crick, and she was never given any credit uh, for the work they quote unquote discovered. Uh, and it's sort of, it was sort of like a, a, a just a, one example of thousands of how uh, men have overwritten uh, women's contributions to science and history. First of all, I just want to point out how I love how unambiguously you put that because often when people describe what happened, they say they all work together and <laughs> Rosalind Franklin didn't quite do as much maybe. And so you know, and you, I like that you just came out with it. They stole her work. They did, steal, they did steal their work. I mean, they worked together in the sense they worked in similar buildings, like, you know, like right. they worked in geographically similar locations <laughs> like that. If you call that yeah. work together, sure. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, so like for us, we want like, how can we give the audience a sense of revenge? So it was, you know, in wrestling, there's a trope, there's a handicap match. There's like it's a two versus one or a three versus yeah. one type match. And so Rosalind Franklin had to battle watson and crick and for those who don't know um watson has had some uh incredibly uh racist and misogynistic views uh, yeah. uh surface later in life he's garbage uh yeah i think that's uh, certainly one way to put it so that's the scientific term for what happens when a celebrated scientist comes out with some racist pseudoscience so garbage we put the wrestler that was in uh, that was playing Watson in like a, a make science great again hat. And oh all he did was come out and like act out all these like racist tropes. He actually used quotes that Watson has said, which were <laughs> horrifying to the audience. Uh, and then Rosalind Franklin just beat the shit out of them. Like, <laughs> and like, and so she had a finishing move of the double helix where she like slammed oh. both of them at the same time and took the, uh, we built a a belt that was like the DNA belt that she took. The no, it was a Nobel Prize belt, and she and she like held it aloft. And you like this is all so over the top and ridiculous. Like, uh, but at the same time, like the audience that shows up at Hood Slam is not going to scientific talks at university auditoriums. Yeah, they're not dumb, uh, and like we shouldn't talk about them that way. They're interested in this. This is a social experience, and like I actually know a lot of incredibly smart really accomplished people that go to hood slam and and uh they uh, uh like had deep appreciation for what was happening there uh, yeah and, but I, it's like, I was introduced to it by uh past quizotron guests justin robert young and ashley paramore and yeah it's and it's not just with hood slam uh every major nerd i know online in the past 10 years has gotten really into wrestling like across the world and i think it's making it's turning wrestling from something that you know we saw as kids and that was dumb and you know it's still dumb in a lot of ways but it's also really subversive in a lot of ways like with that match i think that match is a perfect encapsulation of what i love about 
uh, about Hood Slam. And last month when I went, one of the wrestlers came out and out of nowhere, <clears throat> at the end of the match, he just grabbed the microphone and he said, uh, Black Lives Matter, women matter, uh, you know, we respect LGBTQ people here. Hood Slam is for everybody. And the crowd just lost it. It was yeah. like, it was so progressive. And then they go right back into this ironic, subversive entertainment. I mean, yeah. so I had gotten coached by the people there and it was a, such a learning experience for me because they do this monthly event and they have, you know, hundreds of people show up every month and they're, they're professionals at it. And uh, when we're talking about like this match construction, they're like, we never punch down. We, these are lines we don't cross. We don't make fun of, um, uh, we don't make fun of women. We don't create these like sexist tropes. We don't cross these lines. And they have like clear moral boundaries on what they did, which seems bizarre when you think about wrestling from a superficial standpoint, but you you can see like the morality in these events and and discovering that and being like, oh, you, like in, integrity is not a thing that you just like check at the door because you're going to some zany thing. Right. Um, and the audience like responds to it uh, regardless of where you are. So I, I love that about that event. And uh, we're doing another collaboration with them in September. So, oh, I'm excited because I missed the first one. I got on the I got on the wrestling boat too late. So. I'm I'm pumped. If there's any way I can help out with that event, please enlist my services. Uh, so I I think the biggest help I need is I I got to play announcer. I was I was the uh, color commentary for mm. the for the night, and they're like, you have to come up with a character name, and it was like one of the things that just sort of I forgot, and so my character was Doctor Science PhD, which clearly <laughs> I came up with in the parking lot walking into the event. I think it needs some work. Yeah, I mean, I kind of love it though. It's <laughs> it, it's it's so on the nose that it's it's punched the nose in the face, which I think is kind of you know. And the normal announcer is uh, brosive Brody, bro brosive, something. <laughs> yeah, brosive to Brody. Yeah, and he's he's the broiest bro who ever broed, and uh, so you know, I oh, think Doctor Science PhD is right yeah, up so- there. It was funny because um, Brosive was like, we're going to he he thought that Dr. Science PhD and Brosive would get along. But Dr. Science PhD was not having it. <laughs> no. I can't. Yeah, I imagine that Dr. Science would see bro. Brosif as like a, a Chad, if you will. Yeah, he was not down with the bro. Yeah. Well, uh, so speaking of how how progressive and inclusive this wrestling event is, I also want to talk about. Uh, March for Science, because you were involved in organizing that for the San Francisco area. And I was actually in charge of the 600 satellite marches around the world in the first year. Even okay, that's even more than I thought. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I I would love to hear your thoughts on you know there was there was a bit of a controversy with the national organizers' uh, accusations of racism, sexism, basically ignoring the voices of people of color and women, um, and that it was kind of a hierarchical hierarchical organization that ignored the needs of those satellite cities. So I'm wondering what your experience with that was like. Yeah, so I got involved in the March um, that first year because like something big was happening and I didn't know what it was. I remember when they started the Twitter account um, 
there it was I, I just was like oh that's not going to turn into something because is science really that aggrieved that we need to protest <laughs> for it i mean in the time that it happened it sure felt like it but in you know in the larger context of what's going on in society I'd say science is doing pretty well um yeah. But I saw this um, incredible response, particularly from people that had never marched before, had never saw themselves as being interested in political protest. And I thought that was an interesting opportunity to um, uh, to provide education materials, provide like a learning experience, because a lot of the people participating were young scientists. And then the other thing that was interesting to me was about marches happening where uh, where we don't usually see a lot of conversation about science. So it's fine that there was a march in San Francisco and Boston and D.C., but I was much more interested in the marches that are going to be in Kansas and in Africa and in, uh, you know, in North Dakota, all these places we don't necessarily at surface associate as having big science um, uh uh, components to them yeah so that's what i glommed onto is this idea of like i'll work with all the satellite marches um to help them get up to speed and it was a it was like a roller coaster experience so um i would say like the people that were in charge of the march uh really didn't have much expertise in like running a march they were yeah that started a twitter account um right <laughs> and so like you think about the requirements for that um and they were they're yeah. good intended people, but they yeah. like but I think that's reflective of of where they were at. And while I had a lot more experience with like organizing events, I'm not I'm not some experienced activist by by nature. I've done I've had a lot of activism in my life, but no one's going to be ask me to give plenary talks on activism in the 21st century. Right. Uh and so there there is this ragtag group and my approach was to go out and learn from a lot of um uh different groups especially and, and try to get uh cities to learn from who's who's already doing this kind of work in their towns um the the national group felt a little more siloed from everything they wanted to like control what the messaging looked like and uh they wanted to have um uh, a sense like these are our values as that everyone beholds which doesn't totally work for a system like this um, yeah where you're trying to get millions of people and it's a top-down approach yeah. to a grassroots yeah and so event. that uh, the the stuff that started to emerge was the like people felt siloed from actually working on the things they came there to work on and yeah. people felt uh left out uh because of that approach and that uh even though that wasn't the intention, that was the result. And you can have the best of intentions in the world, but your actions speak louder than those intentions. You know what they say about that road to hell? That it's it's uh, bumpy and hey, yeah, <laughs> it's okay. bumpy because construction crews are are slow. I don't know. It's bumpy because your good intentions are strewn all over the road and keep getting in the way. And so. Um, I feel like the the story that emerged, especially since the the Twitter account, the social media accounts that were controlled by National sent out their messages and weren't always reflective of the values that the satellites um, had was a, a tough place because uh, a lot of the criticism that emerged that they were ignoring marginalized communities and that they um, uh, were shutting out voices were was true to a certain extent. Like it it. 
definitely was true. I'm not uh, saying that there that didn't happen. Uh, in the context of like what has happened historically in science, uh, it was uh, it was a different experience because they did set out with some work on uh, how do we have much greater conversations about intersectionality like from the outset. It just didn't. Yeah. It didn't work. Um, what I. I, I really fought back against a lot of those voices because what I was trying to do is defend the people on a local level that I felt like were doing a good job um, of doing this because they were doing something that was really built on what the community there wanted and reflective of uh, some organizers that were in those communities. And it was hard to see the work that was happening on that level Um get sort of overcome by what was happening at a national level at point. It, it sounds a lot like, um, and forgive the comparison, but Boy Scouts, I, I think of this a lot in when this sort of thing happens where you have all of these locally organized units that are doing good things and good work. And then you have a national organization that's just like, Hey, by the way, no gay people. <laughs> And, and so there's this backlash against the Boy Scouts and a bunch of smaller organizations that are going to feel the pinch from that and are going to lose support from both the community and, you know, from the nation as a whole. Um, so how do you how do you deal with that? What, what do you how do you fix the national organization when it's that broken and saying things that the satellites just aren't standing by i think we are making it sound like it was a a worse situation than it uh it was in terms of i mean the national national organization did not come out and say no gay people yeah exactly (laughs) i just want to make that like uh, and a lot of the the stuff that ignited the the fuel it wasn't sort of like what was underpinning things but that ignited things were just dumb tweets and yeah uh and a lot of it was uh, there was a struggle um, internally because people were because the Twitter account had gained like, I don't know, 350 K followers in like the first couple weeks. They're like, yeah. oh, this is a huge mouthpiece. Like, let's educate the community on like all these scientific heroes and stuff. Instead of being like, meet here, bring signs, <laughs> <laughs> um, right. which is what I like. That's what I thought we were going to do is like show up here and here's the crappy stuff that's going on and why we're marching like that. kind Yeah. And so they did stuff like they, they talked about Watson and Crick and (laughs) mentioned Rosalind Franklin. And it's like, why are we even tweeting about that? Like it makes sense for what the movement is. And, and it ignited um, the firestorm. And then uh, naturally like uh, in any sort of movement building, this kind of work, like ugly stuff happens. Uh, it is part of the process. Like there's going to be relationships that fray on the local level, on the national level is part of what part and parcel you talk to any organizer um, of a, of a March, they'll, they'll talk to you about that. And we saw that, but with this, you know, you know, dumbass social media strategy, uh, you, it brought more attention to those, yeah. to those fraying relationships with just exacerbated the problem more. So uh, I, I think you're right that this does happen in pretty much, you know, we, we see it happen with internal conflicts amongst black lives matter organizers and things like that. I, I think that the science issue was even worse in a way because it, the, the March came about at a time when, you know, you, you need this sort of unified 
a um, mass to to that we we all agree about you know the Trump administration removing uh, language about global warming and, and and those things, but at the same time, uh, at this point in time and for the past at least decade, uh, the scientific community has been more and more fractured by issues of diversity and sexism and uh, all of these problems. So it's hard for uh, people who are uh, marginalized to sort of say like, okay, we'll set that aside so that we can come together for this greater cause because it's like, is it a greater cause? And why can't we, why can't we have both? (laughs) Why can't we? That set aside this for, for unity is not a message that ever works. Yeah. Um, Because you're basically saying like, you're saying a form of shut up. Yeah. Uh, And, uh, and, and, no one wants to to hear that. No one wants to be silenced. Um, and I I totally can uh, can relate to that feeling of of being silenced and and uh, that that message didn't come through. And in that way, the the march did a a disservice to the community. Uh, but at the same time, this really surfaced these discussions in a way that big institutions took to heart in a way that I haven't seen before Um, because the March for science had this like big net of grabbing the attention of, you know, hundred, like hundreds and thousands of universities across the country and big scientific societies. They got entrenched in that conversation too. Um, And they're the places those conversations need to happen more than anything else, because a March, the March was always going to be external to the, to the actual ongoings of the scientific community is organized externally. It was going to last, you know, however long it was going to last, but the real issues that, that we're talking about with marginalized communities, those need to be addressed by where the scientists are in research labs, in universities, in these settings. Uh, And I'm not saying the March had anything to do with this, but I at least am much more hopeful in the last year, seeing many more conversations about that happening amongst leadership of those types of organizations. I don't know if you feel the same. It did. Well, it did certainly push the, uh, the, the justified complaints of marginalized people in the sciences. It pushed them onto a larger platform and ironically perhaps gave them a better ability to organize together and to make their voices heard uh, due to the larger platform that March for Science was getting. So in a weird way, kind of like an, like an exorcism, uh, you know, I think that it was, uh, you know, by the organizers screwing up in a way, it maybe offered marginalized people a platform that they otherwise wouldn't have had to say, hey, look, this is what we're talking about, you know. So yeah, I, I think that ultimately it might be a good thing. Yeah, it's it's it was a difficult experience because I I quit after the the march, part, mostly because me and a few other people that had similar feelings about what this march was good at and what it could bring, which was organizing power at the community level, 
that didn't seem to be the interest of uh, a few of the leaders. And that's when, yeah. when I quit. And it's gone on to do some interesting things. They had a summit a, a couple weeks ago that I've only heard really incredible things about in terms of how they're surfacing um, certain conversations and investing in uh, 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 in- investing in voices that hadn't had a platform before. Uh, but I'm not sure they have the weight anymore to, to make, uh, to affect any change. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see where they go from here. And, you know, if they, if they end up failing ultimately, then I'd be interested in seeing what rises from the ashes because I, I certainly don't think that the conversation is over about scientific involvement in politics and in, you know, making scientists voices heard on important issues that again, we all agree with like global warming and science, science funding through. The Trump administration. You know, record number of scientists run for office um, yeah. it, this year. I think we're going to con- see a, a continuation of that trend. Moreover, um, behind the scenes, and this is where I think the the real interesting work is being done, is there's a palpable sense from organizations across the science spectrum that they need to be much more involved in politics uh, yeah. than ever before, and. When I say involved in politics, that means, yes, on the federal level, uh, but also on state and local levels, but also empowering scientists to be um, to spend much more of their time working with the communities that they represent. Uh, and if uh, if that actually takes root, if this sort of trend um, really, really takes hold over the next decade, uh, then I think science will be much, much better off for it. And is the it is the real interesting battle going on behind the scenes. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Kishore, we are going to have to wrap it up, unfortunately. So tell the listeners where they can find you on the interwebs. Uh, I'm at ScienceKish on the Twitters. Uh, you can follow my science podcast, Inquiring Minds. That's at Inquiring Show. I do the science over at Tested, which is at Tested.com, and I generally uh, just cause trouble. So uh, I'll see you at a, a future Hood Slam and at Quizitron. Awesome. And yeah, you're, we're going to see you uh, August 2nd at Piano Fight in San Francisco. Uh, Kishore will be joined by Ngayo Bielam, Dr. Jennifer Gunter, and Keith L. Jensen. Uh, ticketing info is up now at Quizitron.com. Kishore, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thanks, Rebecca.